Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. My name is Locke Kelly, and I'll be joined by Father Thomas Keating. Uh, to discuss spiritual practice and share some of our insights. I am a meditation teacher, psychotherapist, and author of a recent book called Shift into Freedom on a particular method of spiritual practice that I've found helpful. And Father Thomas Keating is a Trappist monk uh, and a priest for over 70 years who lives in Snowmass, Colorado. He's the one of the architects of Centering Prayer, and also one of the co-founders of Contemplative Outreach. So we've both been involved in uh, interspiritual dialogue, particularly with people who do spiritual practice, uh, both in their lives and as their main uh, way of living. And I think we've had some great dialogues along the way. I'm glad to have you all here with us so that we can share a little bit of what we uh, have been talking about for many years together. So uh, I'll just say that one of the premises in our uh, mystical or non-dual approach is that the spirit or awake awareness or our true nature called Buddha nature, Christ consciousness, uh, ever-present life itself is already here within us and as us. So grace is already available, and we can use spiritual practice as a way of shifting into this dimension of consciousness, which is really in the human being lineage. So, Father Thomas, would you like to say something uh, to begin? Well, this is a rather big subject. <laughs> we could begin almost anywhere on earth or even be other places if you like. <laughs> but to make it practical, uh, perhaps to speak, uh, there's one point I'd like to make that I think is crucial for 
for our time, and that is that the science is giving us some discoveries that have provided, I think, all the religions with a whole new set of facts that are metaphors of the spiritual life and, uh, and even of daily practice. Yes. Maybe I'll just begin with one. If you, uh, yes. uh, when I was on the same platform with the with a wonderful Zen master, Katagiri Rashi, since deceased, in, in Minneapolis, he, he gave this uh, teaching that in, in Zen, at least his school of Zen, uh, we go in and out of our creation every uh, 60, 69 times, I think it was, in every second. <laughs> that means as we're sitting here, <laughs> we're dissolving and being recreated. Uh, in other words, being reaffirmed in the being that we have by the creator and by God. Well, now science is saying <laughs> you can break down every second into thousands or trillions of parts. And there's even supposedly a picture of the big bang at trillions of the second after it went off. And so uh, just as we sit here chatting, uh, our impermanence is present. And the only reason it's present is because the source of our being is with us, giving us our our being at every moment. And yes. Of course, this presupposes a, a recognition that creation is not a one-time act. Right. But it's ongoing all the time. That's and right. little idea, uh, whether you accept that hypothesis or not. Yes. But it shows <clears throat> how fast science is building or expanding some of the ideas of the great uh, contemplative teachings like Buddhism. Yes, yes. And certainly I've been involved with a lot of neuroscientists who have been studying uh, contemplatives in using some things like the fMRI and showing that these kind of contemplative practices make real changes uh, in our brain in relation to increasing a sense of peace and increasing a sense of balance and increasing a sense of compassion. And so certainly some of the main contemplative practices or spiritual practices are uh, meditation, prayer, uh, inquiry, and then, of course, uh, compassionate activity, some kind of service, which is important too. So as we recognize through these dimensions, uh, we can access what you were talking about, which is this constant change. And wouldn't you also say that in some level, there's some dimension of being that doesn't come and go, some eternal, essential now, while everything is appearing and disappearing moment to moment, in a way, there's some essential source or ground of being? Uh, yes, I think this idea of ongoing creation is 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 the first uh, principle of the whole evolutionary view that science has given us in our time that wasn't available to previous generations of of mystics, but which has given us tools that never existed before in, in history like the discovery of the unconscious in developmental psychology and the whole development of the human being from uh, zero consciousness up to, uh, from a religious perspective, the divine consciousness itself, at least that's Christianity's contribution, that, that the Trinity is, is the relationship of the absolutely transcendent God that enables creatures like us to have a relationship with God and to be transformed ultimately into his, into his divine nature insofar as that's possible for a human being. Yes. Yeah, beautiful. So, so that's very similar to the non-dual traditions as well, is that it's both <clears throat> the eternal or the infinite is appearing as the finite, that it's not just a transcendent uh, escape 
from human life, but it's a discovery of a larger, subtler, more vast, both higher, deeper, wider dimension of consciousness that is uh, greater, both greater than ourselves and is essentially who we are at our deepest core. And discovering that, uh, it seems, requires that we uh, name the, the main obscuration to that, which is a kind of separate sense of self, uh, a sense of separation, aloneness, existential uh, feeling of being uh, apart. Would you say that's important to... Yes, that's the fundamental problem of all difficulties is right. the idea that we're separate from God and from each other. Even those two things, and you'd find, I think we would find peace in ourselves and in other people, in our relationship. Right now, the world is in a place of incredible ignorance compared to the truths that the uh, a mystical life has been trying to share over the centuries. And uh, it's, it's a tremendous crisis, but a tremendous uh, opportunity to make use of, of the new means at our disposal, to find new uh, uh, metaphors that help us to understand this practice. That practice of that. For instance, just take, the, take an iPhone or an iPad. Yeah. You can talk to anybody in the world anytime you like about any subject you like. Well, it's a metaphor of the fact that we have the apparatus within us or on our wrist, in the case of an iPad, I guess, to be in contact with the divine at every moment of our being. And, and so just to remember that, just to think of it, look at your iPhone. It, it, this God is talking to you. Uh, at every moment and suggesting what to do and healing our wounds and showing us this tremendous love that uh, uh, is trying to make us one with himself or herself, as you prefer. <laughs> and, and this is available to every human being. Yes. That's but as you said, we start out with the idea that we're separate and then when, uh, when our mother isn't going to provide all our needs, it begins to dawn on us, we better take care of ourselves in some respects. Right. Then begins this long journey into, of development that uh, is, is very hard to prevent really young people from uh, being overly dominated by the culture of the time or their parental influences or the groups to which they belong, because all those things appeal to the desperate need that is a response to the uh, separate self-sense, which is the need for security, the That's need right. for affection and love, and the need for some degree of, of, of control over our lives and of our environment and so on. Yes. So how to cure that is really the subject, I think, of all the, of all the great efforts of all the religions and of even of no religion, because God comes to us not only through religion, but through everything else that's created. Its only reason for being is because it, it manifests something of the divine goodness, beauty, and love. Yes. And, but how to become aware not just through our thoughts, right. but through experience, that this union is really happening, that it, it's growing, it's deepening, and that if we function on the level of consciousness that we have, evolution itself, without any effort on our part, is going to take us further uh, and allow God to become more God in us. Yes. Yeah, I mean, as you say, uh, spiritual practice in some ways from this perspective that we're talking about is seeing whether we can directly step out of this separate sense of self and tune in to this unity or oneness or uh, subtler dimension of consciousness, which is more of our true identity. Uh, so that separate sense of self in some ways isn't just a belief 
but it literally is, as you were talking about developmentally, one of the interesting things that I've explored is it seems to start around the age in uh, a youngster around one and a half to three years old when they develop what's called self-awareness, interestingly. And self-awareness is the, is the time where they begin to see themselves as a subject and as an object. And the way that happens is they say, oh, I'm Billy, I better not touch the stove or I'm going to get in trouble. And then kind of a self-talk begins, a kind of the way that that identity is formed is through self-reflection or thinking about thinking. And that little thinking about thinking creates what I call a little mini-me in the head, behind your eyes, looking, looking out. And that little sense of self drives you crazy. That little sense of self is the false self or the, um, the self that feels it's separate because it's made of dualistic thought. And when that pattern of thought, that constellation of consciousness relaxes for a moment, what is revealed often through spiritual practice um, is that we already are feeling unity and oneness and interconnectedness and a sense of well-being because that little perpetual dissatisfaction, which is what in, in Buddhism they call suffering perpetual dissatisfaction, uh, dukkha, and that suffering is really of this little mini-me, this little pattern of self-referencing that gives us a self-sense. And in fact, you know, those at home could even try this simple inquiry at this time, which is if that little pattern is just trying to solve uh, a problem continuously, it's just trying to solve the problem of identity. It's kind of taken on the body's craving for finding satisfaction and protection, but there's nothing for it to eat and there's nothing that can threaten it because it's only a thought made and it feels like it's an entity, but it's a thought-made pattern. So if you just ask yourself now, what's here now if there's no problem to solve? You described very well what my, my, I like to call the self-made or the homemade self. Yes, that's it. It exists in reality. It's our idea of who we are. That's right. So one of the great questions today, I think, for uh, practice is, well, what is self? Right. And this is the source of great discussion, as you know, in theological <laughs> and psychological and spiritual and now uh, neuroscientific circles. Uh, there's been many discussions about that. So if, right. if we're not our homemade self, who the right. heck are we? Yeah, that's a question ordinary people <laughs> certainly have. Yes. And uh, it, 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 if they would just keep quiet or learn to have a quiet period in their life, it allows some of that uh, false self material to sort of quiet down. This is why silence has such a primary place in yes. every uh, meditation practice that I know of. It, it's not an absolute silence, but it's time or space that is most uh, conducive to, to allowing it to happen, in which one can do nothing except be and, and grateful for being alive and, and open to whatever the present moment brings. Yes, yeah, that's beautiful. The yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Gap in present the moment, someone said, I thought, with great insight. Present moment is God with right. all the circumstances. It's God is no place else except now. And so we better be there. And the more we can stay in that now, the more God can reveal himself to us and share our lives and teach us how to do everything. And yes. In my young years, I... I only think of living with one purpose in mind, how to give God a chance to take over my life uh, with the experience of one more day. Yes. Now I think of half a day. Pretty soon I'll be thinking of a couple of hours. 
we might as well start start early, no matter what age we are, right? <clears throat> we just start with one moment at a time. I'm glad you mentioned that point because we there's no adequate education to teach these fundamentals of the self, right. homemade self, default self. That's right. So in in a language that youngsters can understand it. They need to hear this as soon as possible. It would save them so much trouble if they realize that their thoughts are not really themselves, but they have thoughts, they have feelings, they have uh, sensations, but these are not who we really are. That's right. Yes, I see that among the millennials, the younger people, is they're so fast, such fast thinkers, and they really create a sense of self uh, and achievement and doing and and multitasking very quickly in their minds, and they haven't been presented uh, an alternative. They have music and they have friendship, um, but just like the rest of us, um, I think one of the keys is to discover the alternative to thought-based knowing, that through silence or through inquiry, uh, the discovery is that there is an intelligence or an awake alertness that is non-conceptual and yet fully awake and aware. It's almost like, um, if you know, like, like our parasympathetic nervous system, like our breath is happening by itself. And in some ways, there's a kind of awareness that's essential awareness that's happening by itself that doesn't need thought to know that could use thought if it needed to, but that is the place that I find that's most helpful for people to discover because that's not on the map of uh, psychology or philosophy. Well, would you say it's on the map of of traditional meditation in the sense of contemplative meditation? I think it is. I I think, yeah. yeah, I think it's on in different languages. I think in... Uh, you know, uh, you know, it's kind of seeing through the eye of the heart. So maybe uh, oculus cordis of the. <laughs> yes, you have some great material on putting the mind in the heart. Yes, and and uh, I think you even add that that the, the grace that sustains us and all our various faculties is being poured into us at every moment. That's right. We accept it if we let it happen. Yes, that's right. And there's a connection. I don't think you can make it to happen, but you You, can consent to it happening. Somebody has this dimension. It used to be called the spirit or the spiritual side of humanity. And of course, science uh, was not comfortable with that idea in the earlier periods of its development. That's right. But, But now I think science realizes that. Uh, even a mystical experience that you can't prove by facts is still a, a part of the necessary data for science if it's going to be fully respond to reality. Yes, and the, and the contemplative traditions in the past were more tied to their metaphysics and their theology in terms of worldview, and now many of the interspiritual uh, dialogue uh, contemplatives or meditators are realizing, oh, we're really talking about the same thing, essentially. And, and so putting, finding a language, which has kind of been my project, is finding a human being lineage language for something like non-conceptual awareness. So, you know, in, in Hinduism, it's called Turiya. In uh, Tibetan Buddhism, it's called Rigpa. You know, there's these words for this, and they're often thought to be advanced States that first you have to go through tremendous amount of um, of uh, practices, but I'm finding that people can access this directly. And as you say, it's not you're not creating it; you're really kind of unlearning the separate sense of self. And when you unlearn that, there it is. Yes. Well, this is why children uh, do better at meditation. Yes, that's they right. don't have to be convinced. It might be a good idea that some teachers are now in schools that have the children with not a particular meditation, just put their 
hand on their head and keep silence for a couple of minutes. Yeah. And and the kids like to come back to that. <laughs> the class goes much better if they do that because it's a way of integrating the deeper dimension of, of human nature, which is towards the intuitive and unitive uh, experience. Uh, our poor minds are so cluttered and getting more so by a culture that is noisier and, and faster paced. So this is all the more reason why we need as a practice some periods of time in which we can encourage this awareness, this silence, this stillness, as the Bible calls it, or this nothingness, as uh, or shunyata, as the Buddhists call it. Yes. It, it's, it's there. It's waiting to be activated. It's, it's communicating to us all the time, but without words, but That's through right. symbols of nature and the other people and yeah. it's uh, and it's that place that more people need to experience if the world is going to find peace because right right. now we seem to be pushed around by the childish influences of instinctual needs for yes. uh, control and power and uh, yes, security symbols and all. All of these are coming out of fear, yes. not out of the affirmation that we're being created in love at every nanosecond of time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, as, you, as you mentioned how easy it is for kids, I guess I realized that maybe the way I learned meditation was uh, like many of us when I was sent into the corner. It used to be punishment. Remember? They sent you into the corner to be quiet by yourself. So I think maybe one time, when I was sent into the corner in, in grade school, I started to like it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's typical of our time. But what is best for you is regarded as the worst thing that can happen. <laughs> that's right. Failure is regarded as a disaster, whereas it's a place of great learning if you... Yes. If, if yeah. <laughs> friendly as some aspect of God that is revealing to you. Yeah. Yeah, and as you say, like the word spirit comes from uh, spiritus from uh, meaning breath. And the metaphor in Buddhism for emptiness, the metaphor that's used is the invisible life force within a seed that helps it grow into a tree. So there's something invisible and yet dynamic. There's something very, you can't know it with, we, the reason I think we've missed it is because we've been trying to know it with our minds. We've been trying to find it with effort. We've been trying to will it or uh, you know it with our senses. And this spirit or emptiness that's awake or awake awareness can only know itself. So it's almost by the two main methods are kind of the resting method, which is kind of be quiet and do nothing. And the Zen phrase uh, is... Uh, Muddy water, let's stand, becomes clear. And then the inquiry method, which I do a lot, which is to actually unhook awareness from thought and have it open to space and then be aware of spacious awareness and then realize that you're aware from spacious awareness and then that that awareness is embodied and open-hearted and interconnected with everyone and everything. So shifting from head to heart, literally dropping awareness out of its identification with the thinker and letting it know your jaw from within, letting it know your throat, coming into this heart, mind, and then opening to space and including everything, that you start to shift intentionally uh, using awareness itself to know itself and then return. Um, and so those inquiry and resting, the you know, looking and resting methods are seem to be two of the main direct paths. Uh, and then prayer and service are the other two, yeah? Now, I hear, I hear that the simple version is prayer is talking to God and meditation is listening. What do you think about that? Yes, uh, <laughs> listening is so important. Yeah. 
in all the scriptures, it seems to me, and in all the traditions. Yes. And it's interesting that in Jesus' life, God the Father recommended that twice, once at his baptism and once on the Mount of Transfiguration, and said to those who were present, this is my beloved son, listen, listen. to him. It didn't say talk to him or anything else. Yes. Because listening, what are you doing when you're listening? Nothing, right. except yes. being totally present with what is being Present and receptive, right. Yeah, I mean, one interesting thing that might be useful and interesting to people listening is that in our, you know, discovery in science, uh, thinking, if, if I ask somebody, what is, th- how do you experience thinking? They tend to describe it almost like a CNN crawl, like words, like they're reading words going across. And so if meditation instruction is watch your thoughts, it almost seems like people try to see them. But really, most of thinking, the, what's called the, um, the you know, continuous thinking during the day, uh, is inner hearing, inner talk, the thoughts, sometimes they're visual. But the majority of thinking is experienced as inner talk or inner hearing. So in some ways, if you just listen to silence and then from that silence, listen to thinking and welcome it, you can go right into a sense of presence. Yes. Well, that's what we're trying to do. We'll put it into context now. That's right. useful, too, and that is that uh, from the evolutionary point of view, the humans are coming out of the Big Bang, and our makeup has been repeated or invented or created for billions of years until we've reached a point in, in biological evolution where we've come to a, uh, a new creature who has the capacity to think and reflect and respond, be self-conscious, and, and yes. to have abstract ideas like compassion and yes. mercy and so on. But they, this is called rational consciousness. So, right. so the historians even say when that really began in a big way, say maybe if, what is it, from 800 to 200 B.C., Yes, that the rational life expanded greatly, and that's when I mean, most of the, or at least many of the great religions and literature were were produced sometime in that period. So it was called an axial period by anthropologists yes. recently, and and so the question is: Are we on the edge of another axial period? to move from rational consciousness right. to a higher one, because we've now discovered that rational consciousness, as you just described it, has limitation. That's right. And so thinking is not the whole of reality, but is a useful part of, of our life on this earth. But that it's, it, human beings are now in that most difficult stage in the whole evolutionary process where they're coming from the instinctual domination of our ancestors into uh, a reflective consciousness that leads us into ultimately to divine consciousness. So we can't bring about divine consciousness and we can't go back to the uh, irresponsibility of peace. So we're here with this little window of free will to choose or not to choose or to consent or to reject this world that uh, God has made in which we're invited to consent to. And in that consent, then, a basis for maintaining the respect and the uh, constant practice of interior silence, disassociating with our thoughts, feelings and sensations, while respecting them, but to build this new dimension of consciousness on that by allowing the dimension which we already have to come to consciousness through deep meditation and prayer. But there are other ways it can come too. Yes, that's right. But that seems to be the primary one. 
So instead of laying a guilt trip on people for being so imperfect, they're supposed to be. That's right. <laughs> we're just creatures. We're not God. Only God is perfect. God, he knows this and he doesn't expect perfection. No. But he, and the world he invites us into, into his own life, which we can't imagine what that is. That's right. But that's the invitation. And yeah. But we get and these. So meanwhile, we're stuck in the, with our, and we regress to our animal responses. That's right. it, 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 violence is really a regression instead of a, 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 an effort to negotiate and collaborate and, and love each other and so as to move to a to this higher stage of consciousness as a society and not just as, as it's been mostly in the past individuals. That's right. Yes, I, I agree. I think I think we we may be on the cusp of an axial age and certainly at least developmentally it's possible. So my premise from having spent most of my time investigating, like you, both uh, contemplative traditions and psychology and science and kind of really honestly looking with a scientific eye, which just means uh, what's true, what's working, what's real, what's happening. What I've discovered is that what I think is that awakening is the next natural potential stage of human development. So awakening from, as you say, from a rational, thought-based way of knowing to a transrational, which doesn't mean regressive. It doesn't mean putting intellectualism down or intellectual uh, thinking down. It means returning thinking to its natural place as one of the functions of a human being and taking identity out of ego function and letting the ego function. So when we awaken, we don't get rid of our personalities. We don't get rid of our imperfect, imperfect human nature. We actually discover this uh, post-rational, uh, non-conceptual awareness that is embodied and then open-hearted. And that embodied, interconnected dimension becomes the ground of our being. And that ground of being is literally this far away. It's not, it doesn't take a lot of time to develop. What takes time is kind of unlearning or breaking the old habit of, of selfing, of creating a self yeah. over and over. And when we, when we use these methods of inquiry, uh, we can awaken to be more coming from not an ego-centered or self-centered, but from this dimension of our being um, that naturally has qualities of love and connection and it wants to do service and it's not judgmental. Um, just when you shift into this through small glimpses, at least, um, it's revealed to be already available to us. Yes, you can't control it though. <laughs> you can't control it and be open yeah. to it, but it, it it has a life of its own that's greater than our rational consciousness knows yeah. to handle, and so. But we can reduce the obstacles, as you said. Yes, yeah. And that that and then, is what a conversion really is: is to yeah. think of what our motive is for living, and and then you can kind of get on board. Turn to the higher power that created us. Certainly, we didn't create ourselves. No, and you have this balance between recognizing our our weakness and at the same time our almost infinite uh, capacity through God's love for us to reach the fullness of the human potential. Yeah. I guess you'd call it. Yes, it's to become God too, as far as that's possible for a human being. Yes. Yeah, I think that paradox you mentioned is interesting about intention and non-intention. In some ways, you know, spiritual practice is intentional, intentionally at least uh, deconstructing or letting go or putting ourselves in, you know, in, in the way of grace. Uh, yeah. But um, then it requires a surrender. So 
at some point, any initial intentional practice has to lead to a point of surrendering, it seems. And then the surrender, then we are met, hopefully, at times by grace, by divine presence, or we discover that's always been here. And then the possibility is kind of dancing with that or surfing the silence so that there's kind of an ability then to not go back and create the separate sense of self, but kind of letting um, God, you know, steer, but we're starting to row a little bit. You know, we're starting to, 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 to act from this awake consciousness, um, which we're not controlling, we're not creating, but we're being buoyed up by it. We're being kind of, uh, you know, riding it down the river. Yes. <laughs> Does that sound about? Very good. Uh, and, it's, and it's so close, as you said. Yes, yes. We think it's far away because we don't sense it or feel it or think it or touch it. But it's, it's closer than our own being is to us, yes. closer than thinking. Closer That's right. Uh, than willing, closer than intentionality. That's right. And, and we yeah. know from some of the historical accounts of God's uh, relations with various souls down through the ages that he sometimes just shows up without any preparation. That's right. Here yes. I am. That's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm just, uh, in other words, what is, is. Yes. If we realize that, we wouldn't have, uh, suffering itself would not be a difficulty because the, it, it has a way of teaching us that we accept it uh, that uh, is a shortcut to wisdom. Because yes. it, 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 like nothing else, it makes us realize that, that we are pretty helpless. Yes, that's right. Level of, of yes. functioning, especially when external circumstances become overwhelming or difficult or yes. interior. Uh, trials are, are, are too much for us. That's right. But, uh, everything comes from love. Yes. <laughs> I had a little idea, maybe I'll just share it for fun. Our editors can uh, remove it if they disapprove. But the, the, the sort of uh, four great oceans that we relate to, the ocean of the earth is our, is our rootedness on this planet where the ocean is the chief. Uh, amount of material, at least on the surface. So that's the level of the senses and all. And, and then now they've invented airplanes. So you can go above the earth and get a different view of all that you've experienced when you were just dependent on that level of perception. And so at that level, you uh, coming into an airport, the city at night is just gloriously beautiful until you land and, and have to move around and you see the slums and the, the garbage that hasn't been picked up and all the rest of it. So, so the, the, but that's not the last ocean. Beyond our atmosphere in which planes can function, there's, there is the, the space. Yes. And that it has no limitation as far as we can see. Right. And, and the space that we know of is constantly enlarging. So where is it going? It, it's going in just infinitely or whatever it is. It, there's no limit. And yes. so this, the, the sense of spaciousness comes in there. Yes. And, uh, and you can look back at the earth and see how beautiful it is without seeing any of its uh, messiness and so on. spectacular yeah. sight and finally, the ultimate ocean, it seems to me, is, is infinite love, love that then returns to the stages it's been through and, and, and shares that insight on all the other levels and transform them by giving them the ultimate gift that we share, that God has given us. So you have to go through the stages. It's another one of ladders or stage or... And developmental psychology has done a wonderful job in explaining the human development. Yeah. And we're at a stage now 
where enough rational consciousness manifested in technology has, has come to makes us think we've come to the end of rational consciousness as the goal. Yeah. The development of ecology says that well, why should we stop evolving? Right. And the focus now is on especially the evolution of, of, of rational consciousness into the intuitive and unitive levels, such yeah. as you encounter in the kind of practices that you suggested a few moments ago. Yeah. Well, may I dialogue? Let me suggest building on your metaphor by turning it into a glimpse practice. So if, if people can just begin by feeling that they're the center of the world and they're on the earth, and then just open your awareness, just shift out to the space in the room, and then continue to open, to be interested, and to be aware of space above your house and above as if you were in a plane. Yes. And then one more time, surrender any sense of self to the infinite universe. And so now just let go and open until you begin to feel that your awareness has surrendered and any sense of doing or efforting and you've discovered a universe that's aware of itself by itself. Yeah. And from that infinite nature, feel as if that awareness is free and transcendent. And then notice just as you're aware of infinite space, that infinite space is within every cell of your body and in every cell of everyone and everything. So there's the awareness is filled with a kind of loving presence. So there's an infinite and a finite that that universe is within you, it's supporting you, and there's the sense of uh, landing home, of being both everywhere, nowhere, and here, and interconnected with everyone from this kind of open-hearted, loving presence, which includes the heart as big as the universe. <laughs> yeah, thank you for enlarging. <laughs> we're just we're playing. Love is, love is the final word on everything, and it's but it's not sentimental. It's no surrender. Surrender. And and, and uh, there's one further step you might say beyond okay. surrender, and that's to be surrendered. Okay, something that life and other people provide us with. Yes. Uh, Surrender can still be an ego trip of some sort. That's right. Yes, I am surrendered. Surrendered is to have everything taken away. And this is the great gift of dying. So let's talk about this. Yes. Without doing anything but accepting it, everything goes. It's taken away little by little if you have a gradual dying process. Yes. So that's why it has to happen to everybody because it's the the peak of, of human existence and the transition from without losing any of the values of the lower states of consciousness and yes. sense life is, opens to this, as you put it, this boundless awareness that is not us exactly, no. but is the manifestation in us and our uniqueness yeah. of, of everything that exists or ever will exist. So in that sense, we're sort of at least psychologically like God, if not ontologically. Yeah, and as as it's recommended, all this transformation don't be in the Christian tradition. Yes, but the other religions have words for it too that are very helpful. Yeah, but we're at a stage where dialogue is replacing missionary activity. So it's not my particular belief system but what is the, the basis of everybody's belief system and where is it going ultimately? Yes. It's going into the ocean of love. Yes. And yes. And this love, this, you know, as it's recommended, you know, dying before you die is this, is this surrender, being surrendered completely because I think the resistance uh, to this axial age, to this kind of uh, willingness to go and to awaken um, is the fear of our separate sense of self that it will die 
but it's not us. So it's not going to die. <laughs> that surrendering is losing nothing and gaining everything. Uh, it's only losing uh, the current sense of being in control. That um, feels like it's who we are, and it feels like we're going to lose our personhood. But actually, you become the goal of really uh, spiritual practice is to become fully human, right? As Teilhard de Chardin said, uh, you know, we're not human beings trying to be spiritual; we're spiritual beings learning how to be human. Yes, it works both ways. That's for sure. Well, this is what's so fascinating about God. He's everything at once. Yes. You can say one thing about God without it becoming misleading, unless you say the opposite. And I think that's the reason you find so many contradictions in Scripture. That's right. It's talking to different levels of perspective, to those in the ocean of this world or the ocean of space and the ocean, and try to bring them to the ocean of, of love, which is total. Uh, unification and uh, certainly uh, this is what Jesus uh, prayed for at the Last Supper that, that yes. all people might be one even as we are one which is infinite oneness I don't think you can do much better than that no and, you, you, re- you recognize that everything is included an interesting uh, neuroscience study that they did um, with a group of Tibetan Buddhist longtime meditators who were doing compassion meditation and they looked at their brain and the areas for joy were lighting up and the areas for peace and the areas for balance. And then they noticed one little tiny area right in the top of the head. And they said, well, that's interesting. We didn't expect that. What They're doing compassion meditation, but what is this area that's lighting up? And what it was found to be is the area that needs to light up right before you take action to do anything. So compassion naturally leads to the impetus to act from compassion and do service and actions of love and compassionate activity. That when you feel this ocean of love, there's a natural gratitude and, um, <clears throat> and feeling of generosity of spirit. And from that flows kindness and uh, charity and, and different ways to you know, help, help your neighbor. Beautiful. Well, just to add one little line to that example I gave of the various oceans. Yes. There's a a very profound experience in mystical life, and I'm pretty sure it's represented in just about every religion, in which one is is surrendering to God. But... uh, and, and God is working on that to, to bring it to a further level of, yes. of being surrendered so that everything is just as it should be. One of the Buddhist uh, teachers used to say, uh, everything just as it is right now is perfect. Yeah. Well, from what point of view, please? <laughs> right. Not from certain levels. But, no. but ultimately, this is, this is God's view. And, yeah. So the uh, the movement into uh, freedom, which is what God seems to be uh, one of his chief characteristics, is in being free of all of all the attachment to previous levels of consciousness. Yes. Yeah. Without despising them or leaving them behind, but of bringing them to what they really uh, tended to be stepping stones to the presence of God or manifestations of some aspect. Yes. So, but as a point sometimes in the spiritual journey where all the things we depended upon in our spiritual practices don't work anymore, where the sense of being helpless or or Mm -hmm. spiritually destitute Yes. Over uh, other uh, highly other people look at you. <laughs> you sort of know that and feel profoundly this desperation, and it's like being put in, shoved into an abyss of darkness where there's absolutely nothing to hold on to, and you start falling, and you think, "Well, this is really the end of me completely. I'm going to hit the ground or the ocean. I'll become just a drop in the ocean." 
that that I have no more identity in them. And so you accept that. That's yeah. what sort of this being surrendered means. Anything. And to, it's acceptance of being nothing, of being a creature radically. But then when you hit the ground and, and gradually wake up, you find that you're not just a drop in the ocean, but that the ocean has now moved into you. That's right. And that is, is the means that you really died to the ego and the false. That's right. And are now fully what you would like to be. Yes. And, you know, I think... wants you to be. Yes. And I think you can report this as well, but, I mean, in terms of this new age or axial age of, of awakening, that many people are describing what you're describing. Some people may think, you know, being surrendered or discovering this ocean of love is some esoteric, um, you know, achievement for Olympic athletes of meditation. But I'm finding that people living in the midst of New York City who are have an open heart and a willingness to do some of these spiritual practices and stay with them uh, on a daily basis, uh, go through this period of surrender and letting go. And they may go through a kind of a detox or a dark night or a letting go, but then they discover um, that this ocean of love is a new view. It's a new feeling of who they really are. And that the other levels of ups and downs of life, which continue, things go well, things don't go well, they have losses, grief, um, you know, they're felt in a different context. There's a new view and a new you, which can bear what seemed to be unbearable. Yes, that describes it well, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Good. It's true. I think you find in many terrible situations, slums and ghettos and so on, or the people Mother Teresa used to pick off all the streets yes. uh, at Calcutta and elsewhere now, that what is so, so pathetic is that these people don't realize they're the most precious concerns of the creator. And yes. he fuses them sometimes through that very difficulties of their external life. That's but the same wisdom that, that we pursue in more concrete terms in, yes. in a reasonably ordinary life. I, there's a little story in one of John Vanier's books that, which he went into a slum. I think Mother Teresa might have been with him. But anyway, he, he went into this household where the mother and the children were obviously undernourished and on the verge of starvation. And after a little talk, he said he had a little money in his pocket and he gave it to her. She immediately went next door and gave half of it to their neighbors. And he was just overwhelmed by this. But when he came back, he couldn't resist asking her, well, how could you do that? Your children are on the verge of starvation. And she said, well, they're starving too. Yes. (laughs) Without any learning or discipline, she had received through circumstances an intuition that is incredibly precious, that everyone is equal and that everybody's sufferings are ours and vice versa. And everything is held in common. To realize that deeply uh, would change the world. And I guess it's not quite time for that to happen on a massive (laughs) scale. But if it happened even on a little scale, it could... uh, introduce the human family to this new level that possibly is forming a, uh, in which everyone is equal, everyone is everyone else, and everyone is in God, and God is in everyone, but uniquely in everyone, so everyone can bring their particular gift. And uh, I think they've always, at least I was always taught that God is, is present in each person uniquely, Yes, and has a, pers- a personal relationship with them that nobody else can ever have. It's, it's unique to that person. Yes. And yeah, that- there's something in common on the spiritual level that we're all the same, and yet we express... But infinitely our- diverse at the same time. 
infinite diversity. God is infinite unity, infinite diversity. So if we're going to become like God, we better expand our consciousness a bit and not That's right. regard everybody as our neighbor, as, a, as an opponent or a competitor or something. They're there to be loved and forgiven if that's necessary. Yes. So this is beautiful. We're kind of uh, wrapping up here and uh, it looks like uh, we're kind of back, circling back to where we began that within each of us is this unique capacity that we're already connected, have always already been connected to the divine and to this kind of presence, whatever you want to call that, this dimension of consciousness, which even if, whether you're religious or not religious, there's some clear uh, unity of consciousness that's available with these spiritual practices. And then when you discover this, it leads to a natural compassion and activity, which we all need in this world today. So it's not about escaping uh, reality, but it's actually learning how to be fully human by discovering the most subtle, higher dimensions of consciousness, which are deeper, wider, and interconnected to all of us. Yes. So it's been a wonderful pleasure to be with you, Father Thomas. Thanks. As always. This time, I enjoyed it. Okay. I don't usually so, have such distinguished visitors in my room. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to be with you, and, and we thank everyone else for joining us, and hope you all enjoyed our discussion, and uh, we'll see you all sometime soon.